I usually use this space for a story, but today I just want to make a request. On July 26, my wife, Catherine Perlman, has her second book coming out. It's called First Phone, A Child's Guide to Digital Responsibility, Safety, and Etiquette. It's being published by Tarcher Perigee. And unlike sports, books about parenting and kids, well, there's no obvious built-in promotional mechanism. So I'm just asking a favor. If you have any PR ideas, places to pump the book on a podcast or social media or whatever, do me a favor and hit me up. My DMs are open on Twitter at Jeff Perlman. My wife is a great person, a wonderful writer, and someone who truly aspires to make a difference. So thanks for thinking of us. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of nine books and the host of Two Writers, Sling and Yang, a podcast where one writer, me, talks writing with another writer every single week. And today's guest is Howard Bryant, the longtime sports writer and the author of a terrific new Ricky Henderson biography, Ricky, the life and legend of an American original. Oh, and Howard was actually the first ever guest on Two Writers, Sling and Yang, dating back to July 23rd, 2017. And now he's back for episode number 264. Let's sling some Dad, your podcast sucks, and you smell like vinegar and cottage cheese. All right, Howard Bryant. First of all, trivia question. This is the 264th episode of this podcast. Who appeared on the first ever episode of this podcast? Who is Howard Bryant? <laughs> the first first guest on Two Writers Singing Again. Right. And the gap in between, lots of guests. 264 is a good number. So I've been thinking about this a lot. If you go to like baseballreference.com or basketballreference.com, they always have like the 10 batters you're most similar to, you know, like careers wise. Your Ricky Henderson experience, I feel like your Ricky Henderson book, my Bo Jackson book would be very, it'd be like Henderson Reigns. As far as like, we started with one publishing company, we ended with another. We shared interview subjects. There are times when I texted you a number, you texted me a number. They're both, 80s, 90s, sort of larger than life, you know, in the sports realm kind of players. Uh, we both write late at night. Uh, we're probably both tortured by this. At least I am. Your book came out three months before my book is coming out. I just found it very, and I actually found it comforting that when I had a question, even though I'm on the West Coast, you're on the East Coast, if I would text you at like midnight, you always seem to be up, which always <laughs> confused me a little bit. Why are you always up so late working? Because this is my time. I mean, I have been writing... I pretty much write between 10 p.m. and 5 a.m. Wow. I research during the day or with a day job, I work during the day. Pretty much I am the master of naps. Yeah. And the way that it has always worked for me by 8, 9, 10 o'clock, that's when the ideas come and I start working. It's not really by design. It certainly wasn't when you know we're raising our child because then you got to get up at 6 a.m. to get him ready for school and everything right but this is how it's always been and so there were times when i would try to do the the thing of like some writers get up at six in the morning and start writing and i tried to write in the daytime it just doesn't work right i can research in the daytime i can do interviews in the daytime obviously i can do all of those things but when it's go time to actually put paragraphs together it's always been during this period you may not feel this way at all. And that's totally fine. I feel a certain kinship with, with guys like you. Like I feel with Jonathan Igg. I feel with Jane Levy. I feel with Lee Montfield. They're, 
there's a certain, you know, uh, David Marinus, like there's certain, there's a certain self mutilation sense of torture that comes with doing these books and then doing another one of these books and then doing another one of these books over and over and over again. You finish Ricky and you dive into the next one. Before Ricky, there was another one. Do you not feel that or do you feel that as well? No, I don't feel that at all. Um, and I feel no kinship with David Marinus because I just look so far up to him. Yeah, that's him, right. like, oh, oh, that's how you write a book. Yeah. And so it's just everything I get from David, I have to admit, it's I'm like I fanboy with David Marinus. Um, he's a he's a mentor, even though he may, he may not want to be, but he's a mentor. Um, and I think that um, I don't. I don't obsess and, and, and torture myself over this stuff because unlike a lot of people, I mean, yourself included, let the record show, I don't make a living off of this. I, I have never tried to support myself writing books. And so I think that creates a totally different writing dynamic. It, it's a ri different writing dynamic in terms of the subjects that you choose. It's a different di writing dynamic in terms of the speed in which you write. I've never tried it. I've never felt like it was feasible for me. So because of that, I've always written books at the speed and with the time that I've needed to do the project, right? There was no real financial pressure. I don't write for money. I don't have, I don't have to, not because I'm rich, but because I have a day job. I right. just never felt like when I did the math, because there was a time, I think, after... I think between Juicing and Aaron, I think there was where there was a time when I was like, maybe, uh, and it just, the way that this business works, it just, the numbers just didn't add up in my household. Right. And so I just felt like, especially when I first got into the business, when I first started writing books, your advances, and I'm not even old, because um, I started writing in 98, 99 was my first contract. They were splitting those advances in half, one on delivery. Yeah. I'm sorry, one on signing, one on delivery. You got your book, you got your book in half. Now they cut it in like fours. Yeah. So one on signing, one on delivery, one on publication, one on paperback. That really stretches out. So unless you're getting huge, huge money, you've gotta you've gotta really put together a a pretty good financial plan. You gotta have some money in order to to write those books on that on that timetable, especially when you do big books, when you're doing books that take four years to write, how are you going to eat? Yeah. I have found that the, the only way to do it is you always have to have it coming in and going out. So your paperback is coming out when your next hardcover is being submitted, you know, and then that's your next right. hard, you know, that's the only way you can do it. It's a, yeah, you got to have something on the runway all the time. And yeah. my, my experience has never been that because I've never taken that plunge. So, I mean, I was so lucky at ESPN and that ESPN on two occasions gave me paid book leaves. Wow. I was paid, I was paid to write and they just extended the contract. So however much time I took off to write, they just put it on the back end of my contracts, which was incredible. Obviously they got wise to that and said, maybe that's not such a good idea for them business wise. But once again, it's a totally different book writing experience when that's your sole source of income. As I've told you many times, Ricky Henderson would be a, I, I have book envy. Ricky Henderson is a subject. I just, and I, I think told you, I don't know why, cause you're doing Bo Jackson. I know, but why well, I guess Ricky and Bo are kind of in the same, you know, they're just these figures that are, and I was thinking, so Ricky Henderson was definitely one of my three, Ken Griffey senior, Gary Templeton, Ricky Henderson, my three favorite ball players growing up as a kid. And 
I personally still maintain Ricky Henderson's the best baseball player I've ever seen. Soup to nuts, all around, best baseball player I've ever seen. I think it's preposterous. Kind of amazing would, for a guy who wrote a book on Barry Bonds. I just think he was better. I just do, all around. I think he changed the game. He got on first base, and it changed everything about the game. Everything. I always saw him not being a unanimous Hall of Famer was utterly preposterous. Any category you could possibly think of, he's there. Um but I also wonder, like you wrote about Hank Aaron. Hank Aaron is no doubt an icon. Ricky Anderson has all the numbers. He was colorful. He was dynamic, everything. Is he an icon? No, not at all. Why? Because he wasn't nice. I mean, Ricky is a, I mean, to be iconic, you have to do so very many things that put you in that, category right i mean you've got to come along at the right time you've got to be a signature for a certain city you have to win at a certain level you have to have a certain level of historic uh, of historical significance some of these things that make you iconic aren't even within your control ricky was in a lot of ways the anti-icon because Ricky came along, and one of the reasons why I did this book, what fascinated me about this book, is that Ricky came along at an extremely unheroic time. I mean, like, for me, like when you think about Reggie, for example, there'll never be another Reggie, and I tell Reggie this all the time, that the free agents who come to New York have been trying to duplicate Reggie, which is impossible. And the reason why it's impossible is because there'll never be another period. I mean, maybe the Yankees won't win for years, and they haven't won since 09. But for Reggie to show up as the free agent in the second year, the second full season of free agency, to come to New York when that team hadn't won since the dynasty years, they hadn't won at all since 62, right. they hadn't been to the World Series since 64, for him to do what he did in that city under those circumstances with that much volatility to hit three home runs on three different against three different pitches on three different swings you just can't do it i mean so therefore you can't live up to reggie so in ricky's case ricky came up in an extremely unheroic time period where people were so pissed off about money i mean what i found like for me the the story of Ricky in so many other ways, is this is the third wave of the American century, of the American sports century. The first wave is the is the immigration era, where you know European kids came to the United States and became American by reading box scores, and their parents didn't speak English. The second era is the integration era, where black people are now becoming part of the mainstream. And then the third is the economics, the money, the free agent era. And like one of the most amazing things about working on this book was how, how much the, the, the country and the sport and the culture just clung to this idea that baseball wasn't a business. And then you got a guy like Len Barker who signs a $900,000 contract and apologizes to the public because nobody should be making that much money. And Mike Trout's got a $400 million contract now, right. you know, going through the microfilm and everything. Guys, the public was angrier that guys were making 400000 than what the guys are making today. Lyman Bostock had to apologize when he got off to a slow start after signing with the Angels. He apologized oh, and right. offered to give the money back. 
Well, that's right. And that's and that was one of the sections in the book that I really sort of enjoyed where it was like, listen, even baseball people were embarrassed by the size of the contracts, even though no matter how much talent you've got, um, no matter how much money you spend on payroll, you're going to win between 60 and 100 games. Right. Pretty much every single team, no matter how much you spend, just the nature of the sport. And they all assume now because you're making $10 million that suddenly you're going to go eight for 10 at the plate. It doesn't work that way. You're pretty much going to get a hit, you know, one to three times out of every 10. And, but just the anger toward the players making that much money. I don't think there was any way Ricky could be heroic, especially someone like him who was so very aware of his worth. I mean, he's the anti-hero. That's what this book's really all about. It's a story of time. It's a story of how a guy could go from one of the most disliked players in the game to sort of transforming himself into this Satchel Page Yogi Berra, maybe I'll play forever, and now everybody wants to tell hilarious Ricky stories, and now we all miss him. People hated that guy. So funny. I remember... It's interesting. I read the latter part of your book first. Sometimes I do this because it was a time when I covered and I covered a lot of Mets when Ricky was with the Mets. And I had these preconceived notions of where Ricky Henderson was. He was such a great clubhouse guy with the Mets. Now, I know he had his moment after they uh, they lost some players. He was almost like the crown jewel of that clubhouse. I was going to say crown prince, but he was really a crown jewel of that clubhouse. Was he not always that way, or did it just take people time to appreciate the eccentricities of him? Well, I think it's two things. I think the first thing, I think the first thing is, is that when you're building the monument, you're not the same guy. And Ricky, when he was building the monument, he was not the Ricky Henderson in the clubhouse in 1999 with the Mets, because he was too busy trying to to be recognized as a great player. Sure. I think that's the first thing. I think the second thing with Ricky is that so much focus is on not what he did, but how he did it. And there was really only one guy, and it was Billy Martin, who wasn't so obsessed about how he did it just as long as he did it. And so when you're watching a guy like Ricky and you're a, a teammate or a coach or upper management, baseball does a terrible job of adapting to the people who play it. Basketball does the best job of it. Right. Basketball is a very, very fluid sport. And whoever plays the game is going gonna, is gonna to create the culture. Baseball makes you adapt to its culture. No matter who you are, no matter where you learn the game, once you step into a major league clubhouse, there's an expectation that you're going you're gonna to adopt the attitudes of essentially a game whose culture was formed pre-integration. Right. So... You know, you're supposed to not talk to the other team and you're supposed to drill a guy if he's, you know, if he's too long into the, if he takes too long in the batter's box or if he's too long on his trot or whatever. I mean, all of these different conventions that people say are the unwritten rules. This is all pre-segregation, you know, this is all segregation stuff, segregation era stuff. And so Ricky is never, was never going to be that guy until he reached his monument. And once he reached his monument, once he got to say, today, I'm the greatest of all time, now it's different. And I think there's something really poignant about Ricky in that regard. What I really liked about working on this on this book was 
Most guys, when you're at the top of the mountain and you know you can't play anymore, they leave. They just walk because they can't handle failing against guys who they used to destroy. And there's really only three ways to retire in professional sports. The game retires you because you can't play anymore. The numbers aren't there. Your body retires you because physical injury, you can't physically do it anymore. Or you go out on top. And here's Ricky in his early 40s and his mid 40s hitting 220, hitting 225, 230. You know, getting dusted by guys he used to he used to crush. And yet there was a lack of ego about that. He just liked playing the game. And it was a real contrast to how much people couldn't stand him. And I think that really changed a lot of that attitude. It's like, wait a minute, he actually loves the game. He actually really enjoys this. And, and he's a joy to be around. And I think that's the kind of guy that you saw uh, in 99. Obviously, that fell apart with Bobby V and the rest of it after the playoffs in the next year. But people were always surprised by how much he liked to play baseball, considering that his rep had been, he didn't want to play baseball. And I just love what Ricky said to me. How the fuck are you going to steal 1,400 bases if you don't want to play? No, it's great. It's great. Also, it's interesting. There are some parallels between Bo Jackson. When Bo Jackson was at Auburn, everyone complained, oh, he doesn't play hard, he doesn't play hurt, blah, 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 blah. And meanwhile, they're giving him the ball 30 times a game, and he's getting the crap kicked out of him. And you look at Ricky Henderson and the physical damage he did to his body, all those stolen bases over and over and over again, he was basically a running back playing Major League Baseball. Well, that's right. And what does that say about the people who play and watch the game and their expectations of what people, uh, you know, of what they expect these athletes to be? Um, you know, I mean, and, and especially in, in a really physical game, like with Ricky, they used to say all the time with Ricky, his job started when he got on base. With most guys, they get a base hit and they go over and hang out at first base and wait for the action to come to them. Ricky was about to make the action happen. So his real challenge wasn't just in the batter's box, but it was, it was when he got on base too. And Dave Stewart, you know, always said it, Ricky, Ricky played the most physical game in the history of the game. I just want to say for people who are young and listening, it's worth watching some YouTube videos of Ricky Henderson. It was a beautiful, beautiful thing to watch him on base. And I still, I've told my son literally owned, unrelated to this book, has a Ricky Henderson t-shirt. And I used to tell him about Ricky Henderson taking this huge lead off first, dragging his leg, you know, kind of extend it, fingers dangling and twitching beneath between his legs and just daring a pitcher. And you knew he was going. The pitcher knew he was going. The catcher knew he was going. I think baseball misses that. So the, the Ricky Henderson, the Tim Raines, Vince Coleman, on and on and on, misses that tremendously. Tremendously. Yeah, and I think that that's one of the reasons why people love Ricky now is because Ricky doesn't exist anymore. Yep. It's it's so funny when people use the word like legacy. I mean, does Ricky even have a legacy? Because they don't play the sport the way he played it. I mean, the, he left. There was nothing he left behind. Obviously, he left accomplishments behind. He left memories behind. But the next Ricky Hendersons, they don't even try to find those types of players anymore. I remember asking Billy Bean, "Who's the closest player to Ricky?" And he said Trout. And I said, you know, wow. he said, if Ricky, if Ricky played today, that he would be more in the trout mode, but they would substitute, they would emphasize more the power than the speed. Whereas with Ricky, he had, he had the speed, but he also had power. And so, and I'm like, well, wait a minute. If you take a, a guy like Ricky and you emphasize his power and you diminish his speed in terms of priority, you don't quite have Ricky Henderson. 
you've got Mike Trout. Mike Mike Trout is an amazing player, best best player in the game, but he's not affecting the action the way Ricky did. Yeah, he, he's he's not disrupting the entire you know ecosystem of the game the way Ricky did. I mean, Ricky was. You, know, you look at Ricky's numbers. I mean, when Ricky when Ricky scored. You know, when Ricky scored first, his team has won like 70% of the games. Yeah. I mean, he's in, incredible. I mean, his, you know, I think all of these different things made me want to do the book, right? But one of the things, despite all the quirkiness and the fighting over money and the third person stuff and the bizarre apocryphal stories, all of that stuff is all true. But there's one thing about Ricky that really, really centered this book. He obliterated the record book. Yep. I mean, he destroyed the record book. Like, I remember one time I was with Pedro Gomez, who I dedicated the book to, and thank you for sending that tweet out about how it made you feel. I mean, Pedro was our guy. Yeah. And so we were all sitting around one night in spring training in Arizona at the Grotto, and, um, and we were talking about records that'll never be broken. Like, what are you never going to see? You'll never, ever. Okay, you're, no one's, no one's going to get 511 wins like Cy Young. You're never going to see that. Um, there are so many records that aren't going to be broken, right? Nobody's going to out-homer an entire league the way Babe Ruth did. But nobody's going to do what Ricky did either. Mm -hmm. 3,000 hits, 2,000 runs, 2,000 walks, and 1,000 stolen bases. Nobody will ever do that. We both had our deals at uh, Houghton Mifflin. Then Houghton Mifflin merged with HarperCollins or was bought by HarperCollins or whatever, you know. Yeah, some Houghton was bought by them. Um, so your original deal, actually, I think was with Susan Canavan, who's now an agent. She's not even an editor anymore. It was, absolutely. How hard was it to get a deal for a Ricky Anderson book? Not hard at all. No. Susan and I have been wanting to work together for years. And Susan, and, and I used to tell Susan, I was like, are do you want to work with me or are you saying you want to work with me? Because Susan had rejected Shut Out, my first book. And I wanted to go with Houghton because Houghton was a Boston publisher and it was a Boston book. And so I thought it was kind of a natural. And then it didn't work with uh, Juicing either. And then I think Susan got outbid on Aaron. So Susan and I had sort of been snake bit. So when I came to her, and said, I want to do this Ricky book. She jumped on it. And so it wasn't really, it wasn't really hard at all. Not to say that it was a guarantee that I would get the deal, but when you just start talking Ricky and you start saying, here's what I want to do and here's how I want to go about this. It just was such a, a natural book to do. I was happy that she jumped on it. So when I am looking for books to do, I'm just going to be honest. And this probably makes me sound a little bit, I don't know how it makes me sound. I, I do think to myself, okay, Number one, why I enjoy doing it for two years. Number two, hasn't been done well and thoroughly before, then I won't do it. And number three, can it sell? Like, are the odds pretty good that this has a good shot of selling? When you think about Ricky, are you thinking, is that even enter your mind? Or are you just looking, I just think this is a great book? Yeah, it's the latter. It's the latter. And I, I'm not going to say that I'm, you know, that I'm so cultured and refined. I don't care about sales. It's just that, from an interest standpoint, when I choose to do a book, it just has to be something that is that I think needs to be said. Right. Uh, something that has to be done. I mean, this is an idea that I want to do. And, and for me, I always thought about these stories along the lines of that trilogy that we had talked about earlier, about 
immigration, integration, economic. The, the, what is the story of this industry? And I just thought Ricky was a natural for that and that there were so many different tributaries that you could take from that. And um, and that, yeah, I mean, I remember, like I said, Pedro and I were sitting there talking. We were all in, out in Scottsdale and it was another time. And we were talking about who else can you, who else can carry a full biography? There aren't as many people as we think. No. Who can actually truly carry a full biography with some weight, with some impact, with some actual legacy, if I'm going to use that term properly. And, and then I started thinking, well, how many baseball guys can you, can you say that who fits that description? And then how many of those guys fit that description without having the second half of the book be all about steroids? Yeah. I didn't feel like writing about drugs anymore. I didn't feel like doing, I was like, I want to do a story that I think is going to be, it's going to allow me to have some fun and I'm going to write about it in a way that I can go off in these other directions. And Ricky just felt like a natural. And yeah, to your point, I don't know about how the publisher, I mean, I know Susan is a baseball person and I Susan found it to be really interesting. But as we went forward with that book, the original subtitle of that of it was Ricky Henderson and the Legend of Oakland. And they thought Oakland was simply too regional. It regionalized the book. It was going to hurt sales. And they just yanked Oakland from the title because they just didn't think that Oakland, the word Oakland, the name Oakland was intriguing enough for a national audience. Did that bother you? Yeah, it bothered me because I thought the book was incongruous without that title. I mean, I've been doing this long enough that I should know better than to write to a title. You should never write to a title because you don't yeah. have control over the title. Yeah. But in my mind, that was the conception. In my mind, there was this unbelievable wave of talent from Oakland that started from the Great Migration and one guy elevated above the rest of them. That was the vision for the book that I had. Right. And then I started realizing as I was working on it that this is actually a Ricky book. It's entirely a Ricky Henderson biography. And that incorporating all the other guys and all this great wave of migration and these great players, the Joe Morgans and the Veda Pinsons and the rest of them and the Kurt Floods and Lloyd Mosby's and Gary Pettis's, that wasn't going to necessarily work throughout the entire book, but it could work in the first part of the book. Right. And so I think that the publisher, I think Harper really making it clear that they weren't that into the Oakland part of the story was sort of changing how I went about the writing of it. That's interesting. So are you, the subtitle is The Life and Legend of an American Original. Uh, did you Yeah, they want, I had to come up with that. Are you and comfortable okay with, it? with that? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's my title. I mean, I'm always happy if it's mine. <laughs> I don't like I don't like it when somebody is trying to impose a title on you because I don't know how you operate, but for me, I sort of have to envision the title in order to write the book. Yeah. The title is not separate from the book writing process. Oh, interesting. And and when that title gets yanked, then you lose a little bit of your outline. You lose you lose a little bit of the pathway forward that you thought you were the road that you felt like you were gonna travel. Oh, that's interesting. So you write the title you view as the title of a book is in your head from the beginning and is sort of a guide for you. Yeah, and I try to teach myself not to do that because the invariably sales and marketing are like, we don't like your title. Yeah. And so that's gotta go. I know. So I try really hard not to do that. Full Dissidence was exactly all title driven. Interesting. The heritage was something that we came up with because nobody liked any of the titles. I don't even remember that the titles were so disastrous. We had to just come up with something. And, and so that 
but but Ricky, that but you know that great migration element of the story and that huge, ridiculously impossible concentration of talent in Oakland that was really centered in my mind. Right. It is interesting how you and I probably have uh, seventy years combined of journalism experience, and it can be Jimbo the third year marketing kid out of Florida State who was hired last week by HarperCollins, who winds up determining the title of our books, which can well, be a little exasperating. Well, that's right. And and the cover art and the whole thing, you don't have any say over that. They send it to you and they send it to you so late that there's not going to be a lot of room to change it. They send it to you. They don't send it to you early. They're like, oh, you got to approve this or not. So un unless you've got some real egregious, egregious uh, distaste for unless there's a mistake on the cover, if there's something that's really not representative of what you've written, chances are the cover, I didn't choose that photo on the cover of Ricky. I ended up liking it, but the publisher chose the photo. It's interesting because when I think of Ricky Henderson, I mean, we talked about the cover photo when you were going through it. I pick, I envision Ricky Henderson, to me, number 35 Ricky with the really cool old school A's uniforms playing for Billy Martin, Sliding in under Robin Yao, that's kind of Ricky Henderson. I picture a little more than the Conseco McGuire era Ricky Henderson. It's interesting because I view him in the opposite. I view him as the number 24 Ricky. And the reason isn't because I don't remember 35 Ricky, the, the first, you know, Ricky, Ricky 1.0. Right. The reason why I remember Ricky 2.0 more, and of course I remember Ricky 4.0 in terms of Oakland the most because I covered him, mm -hmm. is because... Those were the years when he had he had become Ricky, where he had combined the speed and the power. And he was with those teams and he was the missing piece. And of course, was destroying the Red Sox. And they just walked around. That team walked around with so much confidence and so much swagger. It was so representative of just of, of Oakland and of Ricky. When the La Russa A's came to town, they just acted like they were unbeatable. And that's what I really sort of... That's the Ricky I remember most. And also, obviously, because I remember that ALCS in 89 against the Blue Jays where it was just superhuman. It was like, here's, here's a sport that you're supposedly not able to master, and here's a guy who is doing whatever he wants on a baseball diamond right now. Yeah. Um, so when you, when you pitched the book, did you know whether Ricky would talk to you or not? And how did you actually wind up approaching Ricky Henderson? I came to him and told him I wanted to write a book on him. This is before you pitched the book. No. Yes, actually. Okay. Actually, it was before I formally went to go do it. And the reason is because I vowed never to do, never to do that again, never to go into a project not knowing what I had. Uh, because when I did Last Hero, Henry Aaron had not agreed to talk to me yet. Right. And I I lost a good 18 months out of that book. I mean, I had time, I was using that time to research and to write the book, but I didn't get a commitment from Henry until I was 18 months into the book. Right. And so there were a lot of sleepless nights wondering if he was going to talk to me and how do I make this book a book if he's not going to contribute? That's going to be the difference maker. The publisher said they didn't care, but I didn't believe them. You know, they're like, well, we just want your take on Henry Aaron. I'm like, yeah, right. No, you want me to deliver Henry. Who doesn't want me to deliver Henry? Right. And ultimately, I got him. But with this book, with Ricky, Ricky was great at first. 
Wait, when you told him originally, you said, I, I want to do this book, blah, blah, was he receptive to the idea? He was. He was. And I don't think he was listening. I think he was receptive because he wasn't listening. Wait, how did you approach him? Like, what, what, do you remember what the I scenario was? I wanted to do this book on him. I said, I wanted to do this book on him. I told him I wanted to do, uh, I gave him and Dave Stewart, his agent, his old best friend, I gave them copies of The Last Hero, so they knew it was a book. I didn't give them a magazine article. Right. I gave him the books. I said, here's the direction I want to go in. And also on top of that, the the genesis of the book, the original genesis of the book came in 2014 when I was at um, Hank Aaron's 80th birthday party and Henry and I were on stage at the Smithsonian. And there are a bunch of Hall of Famers in the audience. And when we were about to go to the reception afterward, Ricky's wife, Pamela, came up and said to me that she wanted a book on Ricky. She said, I want you to do for my husband what you did for Henry Aaron. I was like, I didn't do anything for Henry Aaron. He could pretty much stand on his own, but I got her point. The point was, was think about this for Ricky. So it was really her idea. Uh -huh. And then a couple of years later, I began thinking about it and thinking about it. And by 2017, 2018, 2019, I was like, yeah, this is the book. All right. So how was he? He was phenomenal. He was phenomenal. He was great. He was animated. He was hilarious. It was ridiculous. He gave me hours of, he gave me like eight hours of tape or something like that. Six hours of tape. Where, where do you interview mainly? In Scott, in Phoenix, Mesa. Like at, at ballpark? Mm-hmm. Hanging out with Ricky and just talking to Ricky. And Ricky was great. And then one day it all flipped. And that was when Ricky realized that it was a real book. And I guess people were contacting him saying, hey, somebody called me writing a book about you. And he didn't even make the connection that it was the same guy. And then Ricky totally shut it down. Ricky did the worst thing that you could possibly do to a, to a writer, which is to not just to not talk to you, but to tell all of his people not to talk to you as well. Uh -huh. So a lot of his close people didn't talk to me after a certain point. I'm glad they did when they did, because I got a lot of stuff previously. But when that demarcating line hit, everybody shut it down except one person and that was pamela wait so ricky anderson's wife who he's still married to correct yes ricky anderson's wife continued to talk to you but ricky that's did right. not continue to talk to you and he exactly. told everyone not to talk to you that's right so she essentially defied the order so <laughs> i've i feel like i've i've lived a pretty full book life at this point but this i've never had happen to me before so it's crazy wait wait did you were you able to go up to Ricky and say, what the heck are you doing or no? Ricky, Ricky hasn't returned a phone call. I've not spoken to Ricky in two and a half years. But you talked to his wife. Talked to his wife yesterday. And does his wife ever explain to you why? Like, why is she oh, talking? Yeah, she told me. And I understood Ricky's point that once somebody writes a book about you, you no longer have control. That you have no idea what's going to be in the book. You have no idea. And so... He changed his mind completely. And I understood it. And, it, and Ricky's not, I didn't pay Ricky for this. I didn't, you know, I didn't do, Ricky has every right to be like, no, I'm not talking. That's fine. I mean, you can't stop the book from being published, but he doesn't have to contribute to it. It wasn't an authorized book. So I wasn't mad at him. I was disappointed that he wouldn't talk to me because he had spoken to me before. And I was, and I was disappointed because the point that I was trying to make to him was, the stories that survive aren't the best stories. They're the ones that get repeated. Right. And if you don't allow yourself to get repeated, you're going to get erased. Believe it or not, the great Ricky Henderson. I said, Ricky, you got to remember, you haven't swung a bat in Major League Baseball in damn near 20 years. 
there are people right now who have never seen you play and get this for someone to have seen you in your prime they had to have been born in the 1970s yeah. they're almost 50 years old yeah so let us celebrate you this was the same problem that you know like people said to me after the aaron book came out oh you got to go do frank robinson you got to do frank frank robinson did not want to be celebrated frank robinson went to his grave taking the best stories with him and i you know i didn't get the impression ricky wasn't as hostile as frank but it was also very clear that the person who really wanted ricky to be celebrated was his wife pamela is dedicated and she was committed to ricky's greatness in a way that even Ricky was sort of like, nah, how much are you paying me? All right, so this fascinates me times a million. Um, you know, I've talked to you about this, like Bo Jackson. I spoke to him after I sent him my books and a letter and he called and he was very polite. And he basically said, I don't, I'm not, I'm not going to help you. You know, I'm not going to help you. And overall, most people talked, you know, a couple of people, I think he told not to, but overall, you know, he kind of let it be. Um, is there a point if Frank Robinson is basically saying, look, I don't want these stories told. I don't want these stories told. I don't want to do a book. I just, I don't, I'm not interested. I don't want this. Are we right to say, but look, man, these stories don't just belong to you and your legacy doesn't just belong to you. And I want to tell your story because I think it's important. Or is that kind of bullshit? And Frank Robinson's like, well, this is, it's my life. You don't have the, who are you to do this? No, I think that I think they're both right in some way. But I think that I think this is one of the big problems that we have in this country is the idea that everybody belongs only into themselves and they don't. That's what legacy is all about. Your effect on other people. Right. And and I don't know if Frank didn't want stories to be written. What Frank was always mad about was why do you get to make money off of me? That was Frank. Right. If you had gone to Frank and said, Frank, here's a deal for a million dollars to tell your story, it might have been different. I didn't have a million dollars to offer him. And I wasn't writing this book anyway. He and I got into a big fight about it. I'm like, I'm not even writing about you. I'm writing about Hank Aaron. I'm asking you about your feelings about somebody else. You got mad at you for that? Oh, yeah. We didn't talk. He was like, what do you get to make money off my name for? Why do you get to make millions off of me? And I was like, millions? Right. <laughs> I don't think you've seen my bank statements. And so in in that case, no, I think that you do belong to other people. That's the price of fame. Yeah. Does, do they have the right not to talk to you? 100% they have the right. And that's what Henry said to me. No, every time I talk, you guys get it wrong, so I'm not talking. I understood that. Right. But the show is going on. Why? Because you affect other people. And other people are affected by you and other people are interested in you. And in Ricky's case, people love Ricky Henderson. And Ricky is part of a baseball legacy that goes beyond him. And just because Ricky didn't want to talk about it doesn't mean that nobody can ever tell a story about Ricky. Is a book worse because he cut you off? Oh, yeah, I think. Well, I mean, worse. Sure. I think it's better that he didn't have final say on stuff, but it's worse because he wasn't, there were too many issues. And I said, here's what's going to happen. What's going to happen is what always happens. There are two things that happen in every book that is in this category. One, there's going to be a whole bunch of people 
that you never heard of who are going to tell you all kinds of stories after the fact that now have no chance of being in the book because the book's already out. It's already happening. I'm getting emails from people who are like, oh, I was Ricky's babysitter in 1970. Oh, yeah. It's like, geez, I wish I knew you existed. And then the other thing that's going to happen is that the subject, in this case, Ricky or whomever, they're going to get pissed off about stuff that's in the book and then say, well, how come I don't have a say? And I said, well, because you chose not to talk. You chose not to be part of this. I would love to have you have the last word on all these things. Why? Because it is your life. But if we're going to monetize everything, then, okay, I get that you maybe don't want to talk. And so it both sides are right. And which is why it's the responsibility of the author, of the journalist, to really care about the subject, to really, really take pains to try to understand them because you are playing God. You are playing with their lives. You are creating characterizations that total strangers are going to take as fact because it's in a book. Right. I read it in a book. And so you have a responsibility to them, whether they speak to you or not. That's very true. I get asked this a lot. I'll ask you this question. So let's say you interview whoever, Dwayne Murphy, as an example. Dwayne Murphy tells you a great- Who never returned a phone call, sadly. I won't use Dwayne Murphy then. You interviewed uh, Ellis Burks, okay? Yes. Who, by the way, whose number you gave me and who I use for my book. So thank you very much. Um, and he was great about Bo, actually. You talk to Ellis Burks and Ellis Burks tells you an amazing Ricky Henderson story. Um, obviously, this business is about trust. And, you you know, Ellis Burks has always been a trustworthy guy. He's, he's been very reliable throughout his career, blah, 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 blah. How do you know when to trust a story, trust a source enough that Ellis Burks tells you a story about going for sushi with Ricky Henderson? And you're like, OK, I believe Ellis Burks went to sushi with Ricky Henderson and I can use that. How do you know when it's when you can trust a source and when not to? Well, you're always trying to fact check everything. You're always trying to cross-reference everything. Sure. And because it's almost like, I mean, all these books are like Rashomon, you know, everybody's, there's six sides to every story. And so you try to find as many people in the room as possible. It's simply reportage actually. And like, there's a great anecdote that Ron Washington gave me that's on the back cover of the book about the time Kenny Lofton trash talked Ricky and I'm and I never got a hold of Kenny Lofton so I'm like okay do I go with this story do I not go with this story but Ron Washington and I have known each other for 25 years right and so I am I am believing that he's not sending me down a bad path the types of stories that get a little bit more difficult are when you know the stories that you don't really have a trustworthy source but you have the idea and you're trying to then find the middle ground. How, how much of this information can I corroborate is true? Those are difficult, especially when, you know, when legal gets involved. Right. And you're um, wait, I just want to say the story in the back of your cover, which is awesome. And I read the other day and laughed out loud. This is from Ron Washington, probably one of the most beloved people in probably modern baseball history, Ron Washington, um, now a Braves coach. One time we were in Cleveland and Kenny Lofton was leading the league in stolen bases. And here's Lofton across the diamond chirping at Ricky. See that old man on the other side of the field? There's a new sheriff in town. That dude is done. And don't you know, Ricky just went on a tear. Second, gone. Third, gone. He'd come back into the dugout and say, if Ricky sleep, let Ricky sleep. He just took whatever he wanted. When you talked about or talked to him the way Kenny Lofton did, he reminded you that he was still Ricky Henderson. That bitch was special. <laughs> it's awesome. That's, that is Wash.
That is so good. And wait, I want to say my favorite story that I've read so far in the book, I'm just going to read it real quick here. And I posted it the other day. You talked to Phil Nevin, recently hired, by the way, as manager of the uh, of the Angels. And um, Ricky Anderson was, was famous or infamous, but mainly famous for not remembering teammates' names or not even not remembering them, never knowing teammates' names. And um, you wrote, uh, Ricky was terrible with names. He would just call everyone baby. One time in 2001 on the Padres team bus, third baseman Phil Nevin told Ricky he'd give him $100 for each person on the bus he could name. <laughs> Ricky was quiet. Nevin's face began to curl into a satisfied smile. He was right. Ricky didn't know the names of his own teammates, not even one. After several moments of silence, Ricky then looked at Nevin and said, fuck you, Phil. It's a freaking great, <laughs> great story. <laughs> and that story comes courtesy of the Oakland A's manager, Mark Kotze, who was on that team. Wow. And oh, yeah, Kotze was hilarious with that story. And then I got to go see Nevin, who was a coach with the Yankees. And I was like, did this happen? And he's like, yeah, it happened. <laughs> yeah, it happened. And that's the fun part of the book. And that was one of the things about the book that I was really um, nervous about. And I, I talked to a little under 200 people um, on most of them on, on multiple occasions. And there were so many more people to talk to and COVID shut the world down. And so it was going to become a very different book because I had planned on just walking into the clubhouse and talking to people about Ricky. And then suddenly there was no clubhouse. And so now the book shifts and now you're trying to tell a very different story, which I think was, you know, in some ways satisfactory because you had to dig in harder on the people that you did know. Right. And you try to talk closer, you know, you try to, to talk more to the people he was closest to. So you maybe you get a more intimate book. But in terms of the strategy of just walking into the clubhouse, because the guy played 25 years for nine teams, there's somebody who always knew something about Ricky. And that strategy had to shift with the pandemic. Before we continue with Two Riders Singing Yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman, and I'm here with my daughter, Casey, who's home after a freshman year of college. How's it going? $100. What? I want $100 per advertisement. But you live under this roof. Only temporarily. And while I love Royal Retros, and I go to Royal Retros all the time to get my throwback hats and t-shirts, my economics professor insists one is only worth what she is receiving in compensation. I'll get you a Royal Retros Pittsburgh Maulers hat. We have ourselves a deal, sucker. Obviously the most, I would say the most famous Ricky story, at least modern lore, which you get into in the book is he was John Olerud's teammate in Toronto. He was John Olerud's teammate in New York. And then he goes to Seattle and John Olerud is playing for the Mariners. John Olerud famously first baseman, once led to the A on hitting, uh, suffered an aneurysm at one point in his life, wore a helmet in the field. And as the story goes, Ricky walks up to him in Seattle and says, uh, oh, I played with a guy who wore a helmet in the field in New York. And Olerud says, well, that was me. And you debunk that story, which I'd heard told a million times. Did you know going into the book that the story was not true? So going into the book? No, yeah. I didn't know it was, if it was true or not. When I started researching the book, I saw that Olerud had said it wasn't true. Then got to talk to Olerud. And then one of my researchers got to go really talk to him as well. And so, and first time that I'd ever really used a researcher because I had a friend up in Toronto and I couldn't get to Olerud. So I was like, could somebody please go do an interview? So I was very grateful to... Uh, to Joanna Cornish, who was fantastic on this subject, uh, on the researching piece of it. And so then talking to other folks, what was sort of hilarious was 
everybody believes that story is true. And then I got to talk to the guy who was actually responsible for the oh, yeah. dissemination of the story, which is Robin Ventura. And then he actually told me what really happened and that it was the, the Mets team trainer who had sort of started the story and then they saw when Ricky got released by the Mets and then picked up by Seattle, Ventura was like, wouldn't it be hilarious if he looked at all over and said, hey, I played with a guy who wore a helmet just like that and said it loud enough in the clubhouse that other people heard it and then suddenly it becomes wildfire. That's awesome. Henderson played a million seasons and when he was done playing his million seasons, he actually played independent ball for two years. When you look that over and you see, all right, he played briefly with the Dodgers. He played briefly with the Red Sox. As a reporter, researcher, author, do you consider those years very important, the fleeting years, the small years? Do you think I want to talk to 10 guys from those teams or is it sort of a passing moment in his career and I can just hit that pretty quick? No, you need to know it. It, it depends on what you're going for. It depends on what you're... What is the part of the of the story arc that this that this satisfies? Clearly, you want to talk to people because you want to know. You want to contrast what you've heard from other people, and I think for me, one of the things that I was really interested in with this book was here's a guy who's literally trying to play forever. What is that like? And especially a guy who is known for having such an enormous ego, you, there's a certain lack of ego that you have to have to go out there and hit 230 as a Hall of Fame level player. Most guys when they, at that level, they just walk. They don't wanna play at that level. They don't wanna go out there and be one of the guys. And you know, it's like Joe Morgan used to say, baseball is only fun when you're good at it. And to be able to, to, to still be part of the game knowing full well that you're diminished is, is actually very, very poignant. So for those years of poignancy, you need to talk to those guys for those years. What is it like playing for that many teams and essentially being on one-year contracts for the last 10 years of your career? You, uh, you wrote a decent amount um, in a really interesting part of the book about the exaggeration in the media of Ricky and his usage of the third person, you know, calling himself Ricky, calling himself Ricky. And it almost became this thing that we in the media did. It had a, a weird ugliness to it. And at the same time, he was a really quirky guy to cover, unlike anyone I've ever covered in my life and bizarre in a lot of ways. How unfairly was he treated and how much of that was just the fact that this was a guy most of us had never covered anyone like this before? It's both. I mean, I think on the one hand, it's incredibly unfair because when, who gets to tell the story? This is one of the whitest businesses in the world. <laughs> Sure is. And these are the people who get to characterize people that they don't know or know anything about. And it was very true that the the things that had offended the the white establishment in the game, whether it was media or executives or coaches or whomever, didn't always bother the black players. Now, there was all kinds of stuff that Ricky did that black players were pissed off about as well. It wasn't as though this was a racial story only. But absolutely, when you understand how black people are treated in these integrated spaces, they're constantly making fun of your intelligence. And Ricky was very nervous about that and self-conscious of it because he did have a reading disability and he really didn't read very well early. Ricky was great with numbers, which is why he was deadly at the casino, which is why he's a deadly card player. Yeah. But when it came to the English, the word side of it, he was always concerned that people were making fun of him. And I think that it is true. Ricky is hilarious and Ricky does quirky, bizarre things, but nobody would call Ricky a great interview. 
because Ricky did not really cultivate the press. Ricky didn't have you know those great alliances with media. He was very very wary of media, and and unlike a lot of guys, un, unlike a lot of the more affable guys who realize that hey, we're not players and we're not executives, but we are part of the industry because we're there every single day. Ricky didn't see it that way with media. Ricky was like, I'm here between these hours to give you a performance, and after that, you're entitled to nothing. So he really did hold people at an arm's length. At a, he kept them at an arm's length at a distance. And that made it really, really difficult then to, to discern how much of the writers writing about Ricky was payback because he wasn't forthcoming. And you've been on, in, the, in the clubhouse. You know how it is. There are people who make the job easy and there are people who make the job really hard. Dennis Eckersley made the job easy. Ricky didn't always make the job easy. When Bo Jackson was up for the Heisman Trophy, this is not a Bo Jackson podcast, but Sports Illustrated, you probably remember this. Sports Illustrated had a cover and it was Bo Jackson, Chuck Long, and Joe Dudek from Plymouth State. Mm -hmm. And it was, there was a check mark next to Joe Dudek, hand him the Heisman. Mm -hmm. And Joe Dudek was a, you know, the quote unquote scrappy, hard nosed, rugged. Division two, division three. No, guy. division three division running three back guy. From, from Plymouth State. But he was, you know, sure. working a job and he, you know, he cleans up the stadium after the game and blah, 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 blah. And like I was a, when that came out, I was a 14 year old, still am white, but white kid in rural New York. And I'm sure I'm thinking, yeah, hand the guy the Heisman. And then as you get older and if you pay attention to these things and you read between the lines, you're, I swear to God, researching this book, I was like, holy shit. This is the most racist, gross thing ever. Like they're literally taking the scrappy white guy over the quote unquote black stallion who naturally gifted versus rugged and hardworking. And it's so freaking disturbing. And I think back to Ricky Henderson, when I was a kid growing up with the Yankees, the number of stories about him dogging it, That's him right. being lazy, him being a hot dog on and on and on. And always compared and contrasted with Mattingly, the rugged and Mattingly was great. No doubt about it, but the rugged hard nose, blah, blah, blah. It's insane how that stuff goes on and on Who and on is doing the telling. Yeah, I know. And that's one of the reasons why I never worry about sales and the rest of that stuff, because black people telling black stories don't sell that much anyway. Sometimes, you know, there's, there's, there are a couple of folks out there who get patted on the shoulder, get tapped on the shoulder. But for the most part, the types of stories that I tell, I write for black people. I, I write in a lot of ways to to correct a lot of the perceptions of these athletes because you can see right through it, right? What do you think all these black players are talking about when the white guys aren't around? Right. They're talking about how very rarely they actually get a fair shake. Right. You know, when you talk to Ricky, Ricky tell, you know, when, when Ricky and I were talking, I got him on tape talking about how everybody wants me to make a fool out of myself. And when and everybody was looking so forward to my Hall of Fame speech, not because they were proud of me, but because they wanted me to make a fool out of myself. Right. And, you know, part of it was the fact that, you know, Ricky did, you know, say he was the greatest of all time. And he did say some really, really um, self-absorbed things. But he was aware of that. And so so. Absolutely. When you're working on these stories and you're trying to tell these stories of these people's lives, it's very obvious who is doing the telling. 
And it's very obvious, we, obvious when you're looking at Ricky, the, the, the way that Brian Burwell wrote about Ricky, or the way that Claire Smith wrote about Ricky, was very, very different than the way the rest of the media wrote about Ricky. But Ricky only had a couple of, of black writers write about him. And that's what I mean about, about what gets emphasized and what doesn't and how it's, and how it's portrayed in, in, in the writing. Like the, back in the old days when they would take the Latino players and they would quote them phonetically. Oh, yeah. Clemente and Rico Cardi and the rest of those guys. And they would do that. It's incredibly insulting. So I'm writing a Bo Jackson book and I'm writing about obviously his upbringing in poor black Bessemer, Alabama, because I do not have the experience that you have of growing up as an African-American guy in America. Can I not write that in the right way? I don't know right way is the right word. Yeah, it depends on what you do with it. Depends on who you are and what your chops are and if you're good enough and if you understand it and if you if you pull it off. Sure, you can write about it, but can you write it well? Depends on who you are. I mean, I was in the same category when I was working on the Hank Aaron book. And on and on Ricky as well. I was Ricky's ten years older than me. I didn't grow up in California and I'm certainly not from the deep south. And Ricky is. Ricky was born in Chicago and he grew up in Pine Bluff, Arkansas until he moved to Oakland. You know, with the Henry Aaron book, I had three problems with Aaron. Number one, Henry was born in 1934. I was born in 1968. So generation-wise, I had to really be make, I had to really, really be mindful of not trying to place my 1968 attitudes on a black man born in the Depression. You know, why didn't you do this? And why didn't you talk back to that guy, right? You can't do that. The second problem I had with Henry is that I'm from Boston. He's from Mobile. So you can't be putting your Yankee shit on Henry Aaron as well. You're from the North. And to sit there and judge how somebody from down there where the hanging tree still exists in Mobile, are you going to really, you know, how are you going to portray how he reacted to his life down there? And then, of course, the third thing was is that Henry retired in 1976. I was seven years old right. in an American League city. I know he played for the Brewers, but I don't remember Hank Aaron playing. I have no recollection of Hank Aaron as a player. And so whether you're, whether you're generationally challenged on this, whether you're racially or regionally challenged, or you know, whether you're white and Jewish writing about a, a black player from Alabama, depends on what you do with it. That's the whole point. I mean, David Marinus is writing a terrific book right now, or wrote a terrific book right now on Jim Thorpe. And he's not Native American. But you have to do. Do you have the chops to pull these stories off? That's the big challenge for all of us. And it's a real trick, like you said. You have to be open-minded to a world that you don't know, and you have to allow for the for beliefs that you may not understand, for ways of raising a kid that you may. You know, Walter Payton, his you know his mom used to beat the crap out of him with a switch. That's a horrifying idea to me. But you have to be able to put yourself in the mindset. No, this is Columbia, Mississippi. Right. Exactly. Um, we work our asses off on these books and we bleed these books and the book comes out. Does it live up to the hype when the book comes out? Does it meet what you want? Are you getting something out of it? Or is it more the journey of the book itself? Well, I, I've always said the work is the reward. It's the one thing that you actually have control over. It's yeah. the one piece of this that you, that is yours. And so that has to be, that has to fulfill you. It has to sustain you. Everything else is a toss up. People will buy the book or people will not buy the book. People may buy the book a lot or they may ignore it. People may interpret the book in a way that you didn't intend. It's not yours anymore. 
Now, obviously, you have to concentrate to the business side of it and concentrate on the business side of it because you also don't want to be penalized for not selling. That all of a sudden, if you don't sell, your advances go down. And now people don't believe that you can move a book or you're going to be that person who is critically acclaimed and commercially not viable. You don't want any of those labels. So it's really important to sell. And you also, there is an arrogance that comes with writing that you feel like you have something to say that people should listen to. And so because of that, clearly you're going to pay some attention and you want people to listen. I'm no different than anybody else. I just try really, really hard not to be governed by the external and to be motivated by the internal. The external is the stuff that drives you insane. Checking your Amazon rank every 25 seconds, you know, wondering, you know, if this review got it right and whether if that review did or how come this magazine didn't review me and how come I'm not in the New York Times this time around, right? And all of those different things. You are really at the mercy of that. And you have to figure out a way to navigate it or it's going to drive you completely insane, especially in a business that's shrinking because very little of the decision-making has anything to do with you anyway. It just has to do with the fact that you've come along at a time when the industry is nowhere near what it once was. First of all, that was beautiful. <laughs> Soup to nuts beautifully said right there. I also find it really fascinating how you notice this with new writers. I don't know if you have new fr friends who write a book for the first time and they'll say, I'm not getting any support from the publishing company. This is blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, yeah. if you've been doing it as long as you and I have, you just kind of, I feel like you're just like, yep. They're never going to do enough for you on the book anyway. It's never going to be enough. Right. You know, you know the, there are ways to manufacture and to try to make a bestseller. But so much of what, you know, of what the publisher can do for you is really dependent on where you fit in the pecking order. And none of us are really that high in the pecking order. I mean, there have been really good PR people. But generally speaking... What does it mean for a publisher to really get behind a book? They don't know how to sell their own product products unless you're Hillary Clinton or Barack Obama or Donald Trump or somebody who's trying, you know, who's got a huge name and can sell books on their own. They don't do, you know, they're not advertising your book with, you know, up and down the subway. I mean, I'm sure there have been a couple in a, where like, I think I got a subway ad for shutout back in oh. 2002. That was kind of awesome. Yeah. I never got to see it. But somebody told me that they saw shout out on the green line or the orange line or wherever it was. That was kind of amazing. Yeah. Um, but it's not like like a movie promotional budget when you're walking, you know, you, you get off the one train and, you know, there's a poster for succession er, up and down every inch of the subway. Publishers don't do that for us. Like John Wertheim was once sent to a bookstore that doesn't exist. My first book signing at my local library, they didn't advertise for it, and three people came out and two of them were my parents. Do you have a, uh, do you have an experience from your book career that, uh, you know, your nightmare experience story? So many of them. The first one, and one of my favoriteest, favoriteest, favoriteest bookstores, love, 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 Elliott Bay Bookstore in Seattle. For a shutout, my very first one, very first. I'm flying cross country to Seattle, I do the radio hit. I'm feeling like I'm all that because it's like, oh my God, I'm actually on book tour. This is the thing that you work for. This kind of feels great. And I get to Elliott Bay and there's 50 chairs downstairs, a lectern, a pitcher of water, and one homeless guy sleeping in the corner. 
Nobody showed. Nobody. Not one person, not five. Nobody showed. There was no one there. And I'm 3,000 miles away from I'm like, oh, my God, this is a disaster. Now, luckily, the next night in San Francisco, we sold the place out, and that was great. And Art Howe came to it, and that was all fun, and it made me feel better about my life. But that first one, goodness gracious, there was nobody there. I hate doing signings. I do them when they ask me to, but I find them so... I just think it's the most vulnerable place for an author to be. And well, I it absolutely is. And I think the other piece that comes with that is that there is in COVID in the business world, it, both of the, the combination of COVID and the changing nature of the business is really creating a challenge for that tradition. There's a tradition that the author engage in person with the reader. Now, if you do the math, I'm not sure how much bang for the buck there really is. If they put you on a plane to fly, exactly, they fly across the country and, you know, they're going to drop a, a thousand bucks on you traveling. They're going to drop another 500 on you on the hotel for that night or two nights or whatever. And you're going to move 35, 40 books. I know. I mean, that that is bad math all the way around. Also, they send out like 50 copies of the book that you're now trying to sell 50 copies of. Well, that's right. And then the other piece of it that's crazy is that, you know, they rely so much on our Rolodexes because we're in the business. But I'm like, don't you realize that the people that you're sending the book to are my competitors? There are very few people that are actually really happy for me that I've written a book. They're more upset that they haven't. So not that many of your newspaper sources or your, your media sources are going to go out of their way to help promote your book. I was genuinely happy for you. Sincerely. Yeah, sincerely. No, I mean, I think that there's, like I said, some people are actually really into it, but you've also written enough books. I think that I'm hoping there's a level of security there that you have where you can be charitable and you can be secure in the accomplishments that you have to read other people. There are some people who never reach that point. They're upset that they've never gotten to the book, you know, place or they're not happy for you, right? They're, they're actually competing against you. And so my attitude has always been, I just do what I do. And I don't compare myself to what anybody else is doing. I just do what I do. And I go as far as it takes me. And everybody does different things. You know, you and I, you know, around, I'm older than you, but we've written around the same number of books. You know, we, we're in the same space. We don't write the same books. Right. You know, we don't do the same type of thing. And so I've always just figured that the people who were going to be, um, who were doing their thing, then more power to them. And if they can bring it in a way that I can't, well, that's on me. And it's like, you know, and in today's world, it's been really, it's a really interesting phenomenon because now there's this argument that, okay, if you're, if you're not the subject, you know, if you're not a peer of the subject or if you don't look like the subject or whatever, you can't write anything. Um, I've always been conflicted about that because there is something to be said for actually doing the work. Right. Somebody has to put the work in. And if that somebody happens to be, you know, a white guy writing about a black subject or if somebody, you know, you know, writing about whomever, well, somebody put that work in. And that deserves respect. Now, I think where it comes, where it's, where it's problematic is that it's not a two-way street because white men can write about whatever the fuck they want to write about. And 
very rarely do does anybody else get to write about them and so that's where i sort of understand that i i understand that there that that world needs to open up but other than that i sort of feel like what we do is really really hard and it takes time and it takes patience and it takes ability and all of those things and if somebody can put the work in like my motto has always been write your story before somebody else does and now my motto in the the sort of film side of the world is everybody's working on everything so put your time in and do the work and then you can complain but at least do the work my other thing is i through the years i've definitely changed as i always think you having a successful book on ricky henderson has no negative impact on me whatsoever and any feelings of jealousy or resentment it doesn't even make any sense like you howard bryan having success as an author is no reflection on me as an author at all and i'm sure i went through a period of my life where you know especially coming up at si where people get promoted and why is that guy getting promoted i'm not getting and then along the way you're just like it has nothing to do with me has nothing to do with me how other people do and you see this i always view it this way especially when it comes to stuff like that businesses have hundreds of people they have to think about you have one person you have to think about and so the decision making is really not always personal and when it is personal then you have to take your take your career into your own hands i look at my career and my career has been my career has been shaped by one thing and one thing only and it's not my ability it has been my ability to get books published right when i've gotten books published the opportunities of my day job have increased but i was never that person in the industry who got tapped on the shoulder to succeed right i've always had to force people to pay attention to whether or not i can do anything and right. usually that force has come from being published and then they go oh my goodness that's you know he he's got ability so don't you find there's something um i'm not saying we have the same path but when I was hired at SI, it was an Ivy League pipeline and I was a guy from uh-huh. Delaware and I always felt in a way, I kind of, there was always a part of me that had a chip on my shoulder about that. And I'm not saying it's the same as being an African-American writer in a 98% white field, but I do feel like there's something empowering about having a lot of people say no, 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 and then doing it and feeling something about that. Yeah. I mean, especially when it comes to this industry controlling black stories right i mean i realized a long time ago here's what i do and concentrate on what you do you know and you're talking about the ivy league pipeline i mean when i came to espn it was rick riley and bill simmons they were the ones with dedicated space on the homepage, right and they were the big dogs they were the giants and they were the guns getting the double digit million dollar contracts as well And so there were all kinds of people at ESPN who were trying to mimic and copy those two, that they, they were the ones on top, they were the pathway. And so if you wanted to follow, if you wanted to have any sort of success, you had to follow that pathway. And I never subscribed to that. Right. I do what I do and I'll go as far as I go based on what I do and what interests me. That's the only way. That's the only way that I know how to how to go about things. And you look at the types of books that I've written, those books, you know, obviously the latest one with Ricky, those books reflect what I find interesting, right? I mean, so it's it really is something that you have to 
teach yourself. And I've been around them, and I'm sure you've been around them too, the people who cannot help but keep score. They're scorekeepers. So everything that happens to other people, they have to find some way to figure out how this, how is this affecting me? It's right. actually not affecting you at all, but you don't see it that way. Correct. So to me, I just say, here are the projects that I work on. Here's what I'm doing. I'll get more upset with myself when I feel like there are issues or subjects that I haven't given enough attention to. And now somebody else did it. That's when I get mad, but that's really more me challenging myself to be better. I just want to wrap this by saying Ricky Henderson, career stolen bases, 1,406. Second place is Lou Brock with 938. But the leading active player, trivia, Howard, who's the leading active stolen base guy? That's a great question. And I don't even know the answer to that. It is Elvis um, Andrus. Elvis Andrus was not on my list for that. Elvis, all right, Ricky Henderson. 1,406. Elvis Andrews is in a 146th place all time with 320. That record is never getting, I don't care. It's never getting touched. I don't care if baseball lasts another thousand years. No one is breaking Ricky Anderson's all-time stolen base record. Well, and nobody's actually, it's not just that one, but what nobody's breaking in terms of Ricky is nobody's breaking the, the you know, the, the numbers across the board. Oh, yeah. The, the milestone numbers. 3,000 hits, 2,000 runs. 2,000, you know, 2,000 walks and 1,000 stolen bases, never going to be broken. Hey, how about 297 home runs? And I mean, 297 like home runs and 81 leadoff home runs. And my favorite, you know, my favorite Ricky stat on this has been, you know, from 1979 to 2003, right? That's Ricky's career. Ricky played you know, those seasons. From 1979 to 2001, Ricky's last year, you know, the last year before joining the Boston Red Sox, Ricky had stolen something like 1,390 bases or something like that, right? Before joining the Red Sox. When he joined the Red Sox in 2002, he had stolen more bases over his career than the Red Sox. He outstole an entire team during... <laughs> during his career before joining the Red Sox. He had outstolen an entire MLB franchise. 2002 Red Sox. He's 43 years old. He's a part-time player. He plays only 72 games and he steals eight out of 10. And on top of that, hit a leadoff home run to start the season and oh, yeah. Derek Lowe's no hitter. Oh yeah. And then he wanted to hold a press conference, ask for more money, which was in your in book. Oakland. I want to hold a press conference and, and hold out for more cash. That's Ricky for you. Well, Howard, you're, you're now number one and number 264. So that's uh like Ricky Henderson, number one on the all-time stolen base, there can only be one number one, and that is Howard Bryant. That's right. It's a testament to my longevity. Exactly. Um, seriously, congrats on the book, obviously. Thank you so much for doing this. No, thank you. Looking forward looking forward to Bo, and I am really excited to see what you, you know, what you do with it because, you know, Bo is such a, a mythical figure. And yeah. there may be there may be no player in the history of the post television modern game where the gap between who he was personality wise and the media creation of him oh, yeah. is probably nobody even close. I would agree with that. I also find it interesting. I keep saying this to people. People are like, what if he never got hurt? So let's say he goes on to be Eric Dickerson in football and like Sean Green in baseball. The story isn't nearly as interesting. No, it's really not. Yeah. No. Yeah. And, and on top of that, when it comes to, when it comes to Bo, who knows what he was going to be as a baseball player? 
Yeah. He's like Dion. Who knew what Dion was going to be as a baseball player? Exactly. Incredibly talented, obviously good enough to be world-class at both sports. But their baseball was declining so rapidly yeah. that you never know what kind of baseball player Bo is going to be. I agree. He's the great, you know, what if. I want to thank today's guest, Howard Bryant, for joining me on Two Riders Singing Yang. You can follow Howard on Twitter at hbryant42 and by Ricky, the life and legend of an American original wherever books are sold. If you have a chance and enjoy Two Riders Singing Yang, please go to the vehicle of your choice and leave a nice review. I make no money for doing this, and I rely on word of mouth. Music is by the slick MC White Owl. Thanks again for joining me, and remember, keep riding.